Happiness runs in a circular motion. Thought is like a little boat upon the sea. Hello and welcome to Campfires and Color Wars, a podcast about summer camps and the stories we love to tell about them. Like the time Gabe Shoemaker ran over a cow in the camp van and we held a memorial service the next morning set to the tune Cheeseburger in Paradise. I'm Micah Hart, and for the next 45 minutes or so, we want to press pause on the world around us and transport back to the days of our adolescence, when the school year was just one long rest hour between days at camp. A quick reminder, if you would like to have a story featured at the top of the show, um, please feel free to email us your favorite short story memories of camp. Uh, You can email us at summercamppod at gmail.com. And also, thank you to everyone who has uh, given us a rating and a review on iTunes. It definitely helps. If you haven't, uh, hey, we sure would appreciate it. Um, But uh, no, uh, you know, we appreciate you listening regardless. Today's episode uh, is a lot of fun. Um, I guess I say that about all of them, and I believe that about all of them. Uh, I'd like to think I'd be honest enough to say, you know what, I don't think this is a very good one. Uh, You probably shouldn't listen to it. Um, but, uh, this one in particular, I have a a personal stake in, um, Paul Shirley, today's guest, uh, is, uh, a, uh, an interesting, uh, guy who, uh, former basketball player, former professional basketball player, uh, and a terrific writer who has parlayed both of those things into lots of great experiences. And, uh, he's just recently, uh, released a new book of, uh, memoirs called, uh, Stories I Tell on Dates. Uh, which I really enjoyed, um, and the first chapter in it is about uh, his time at camp, and that's one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, to talk to him. But uh, I have a personal history with Paul. Uh, he's not really aware of that. Uh, we we talked about it a little bit, but uh, when I first started working in professional sports uh, in 2004 2005, I was overseeing the website for the Atlanta Hawks, and I wanted us to start. Uh, blog for the team's site. Uh, and just to show you how much things have changed in the digital landscape since then, it took me about a year to convince the higher-ups just that the concept of a blog was something that was okay for us to do. Uh, but in the meantime, while I was fighting that good fight, the sons for whom uh, Paul played, he was the 12th man uh, for really one of the best teams of all time. I realize this is a camp podcast, not a sports podcast, but I'll get to it. Point being, they asked him to write a travel blog on a long road trip that they were taking and didn't even really know that he was uh, a writer. Um, they just, he was the 12th man and and he didn't get much playing time, so uh, they thought it would be fun. And it just was very fortuitous. It turned out that he was a terrific writer. Um, and so he documented his uh, his travels uh, and kind of gave a sneak peek behind the curtain of what it's like to be a basketball player in the NBA, and it really uh, blew up. Um, so I was incredibly jealous, but I've been a fan of his ever since, uh, and I really liked his book, uh, and it's out now, so definitely check it out. Um, but in the meantime, we had a really fun conversation about uh, about summer camp. Uh, I would say his his experience was probably a bit different than mine, um, but always still interesting to hear, uh, you know, what, what camp does for people and how, uh, how it changes their outlook on life, uh, and how it sets them up for, uh, for future interactions with the world. Um, so this was a lot of fun, uh, and I highly recommend, uh, you've made it this far. You might as well keep going. Uh, but, uh, with no further delay, uh, my conversation with 
uh, author and former basketball player Paul Shirley. Happy to be joined by Paul Shirley, author and uh, professional basketball player. Now, can, would you be considered still a professional basketball player? Is it like a lifetime distinction, or do you have to be known as a former professional basketball player? I think it's it's totally former. I mean, uh, I, I mentioned this. I, I didn't want we don't want to start talking about the book already, but I don't know <laughs> if you got to the part where I talk about uh, meeting a uh, a playmate at the Playboy Mansion, and and I said to somebody when I was introducing her to some male friend, like this is a, a former playmate. And she's like, no, 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 current always once a playmate. Always a playmate, like the president. I don't think that applies to basketball players. I, in fact, I always like bristle at the idea of being called a basketball player because it was like that was a thing I did, but it was a long time ago. But you are an author, and uh, I think you can say that for for all. Time. Yeah, no, I'm okay with that. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with like being called an ex-professional basketball player or an ex-basketball player. But I think it's I'm in a confusing time in my life, and maybe you're in that same state. I'm not sure your exact age, but. I'm old enough where it seems ludicrous to think that I could still play professional basketball, but I still look young enough to the average person where they're like, eh, maybe he still plays. I don't know. <laughs> so to me, I think that's part of the problem is I, when somebody says like, oh, he's a, a professional basketball player. I'm like, no, I'm so old and gross. And <laughs> like it's not, that would never work now. Uh, well, you mentioned your book, uh, and I believe as of this recording, it drops tomorrow. It's uh, Stories I Tell on Dates. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, you were cool enough to send me an advanced copy. Um, and I have definitely enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to connect with you in, uh, in the book, you start out talking about your experience at summer camp. Um, and it's interesting because, uh, we had uh, a guest last week, a woman named Mandy Berman, who wrote a novel about sort of coming of age at camp. Uh, I mean, I would say ostensibly from a female perspective, it's about female friendships and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it wasn't a long chapter um, in your book, but it definitely, I felt like sort of talked a little bit about sort of that age where you're, you're still not entirely sure of who you are yet. uh, And maybe, maybe there's some homesickness and all. So that's why I wanted to sort of get, uh, get a little more in depth with you on your, on your camp experience and see if that was in fact the case. Um, so first and foremost, tell us a little bit about uh, where did you go to camp? How long did you go for? What was what was your general experience there like? So many camps. So like my uh, the, the first chapter in the book um, starts on a date in Kazan, Russia. As most books do, as, obviously. As all great books do. Um, <laughs> Kazan, by the way, uh, one time home of uh, Tolstoy. So in good company there. Um so, uh, so the, the format of the book is that each chapter starts on a date. I explain who the person is, how I came to be on this date, and then I explain why I might tell a certain story. And that one was near and dear to my heart because I'm so, so far from home. I'm in not only Russia, but like 500 miles east of Moscow, kind of Russia. And I'm on this date, and I am then inspired to tell her this story about my first ever trip to any sort of sleepaway camp, which for me was science camp. Very cool science camp. Uh, They had passed out the brochures like in the spring. And I I remember being in fourth grade and thinking like, this is going to be awesome. And I don't know why I thought that because like 
wasn't that really that into science. I don't, I guess, <laughs> I think I just got caught up in the fervor as you do when you're 10 years old. And so I packed all my stuff and, you know, put my name on my underwear and all of the things that you do. And then got into the car with my mother and my best friend who in the book, his name is Darren Densmore. That's of course not his real name. And, uh, or sorry, it may have been, it was, uh, it was Oliver Bledsoe in the, in that's that particular friend. So we, uh, we arrive at, at camp and my mom, um, helps me kind of get settled and we make my bed and all of that. And then she's like, all right, well now I'm going to go. And it was that moment where that feeling of your stomach sucking into your rib cage, knowing this was a terrible idea. I should not have done this. I think before that I had been fairly brave, kind of just not thinking about I've got four nights ahead of me away from my parents. I think it was also exacerbated by the fact that I'm the oldest. And now that doesn't seem like it matters. But when you're a kid, that does have a lot of influence on how you feel about these things. Because you're kind of the explorer and you're out in the world figuring stuff out. So anyway, my mom drives off through the, the gravel of Rock Springs Ranch, which is just outside of Manhattan, Kansas. And I'm left alone with this like panicky feeling that I'm now very familiar with and know sort of how to mitigate. But at the time was just like, I, I'm not sure what to do about this. So I set about making my bed and like, you know, getting my bag ready and kind of making my little nest. And then I found a bag of hot tamales, like the candy that my mother had left with a note that said like, love you. See you when you get back. And that of course made things worse. And I was <laughs> tempted to just like sprint out onto the highway after her to try to get her to come back. But then it occurred to me like, okay, you've got friends. So I went and found some of the friends and I was thinking like, well, maybe some of them will be in my cabin and that'll make things better. But of course, as luck would have it, none of them were in my cabin. So here I am with just strangers. And again, I think it's hard for us to recall what it's like to be a kid and in, in thinking about even the simple act of sleeping in a new place. Like I had never, aside from relatives, spent the night away from home. So I was terrified that like, I'm not going to be able to go to sleep. I don't know what's going to happen at night. I was a very late bloomer in general. So all the other little boys were starting to get mischievous and I was kind of just this like nice little bouncy kid. So I didn't want to get involved in whatever nonsense that involved their dicks that was going to happen. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm, I'm pretty pent up and panicky, but then on the first night there was uh, a visit for, from, uh, you know, how at the beginning of camp, there's always that sort of welcome campfire. And that was the case here. They had some sort of, campfire. And then there was a, a speaker who was a guy from NASA, which at the time was a big deal because like this is the mid 80s and there's space shuttle flights all the time. I don't mean, and to, I remember I don't mean to disparage uh, where you grew up, but that seems like an impressive pull for a week long summer camp in the middle, in uh, science the middle camp of Kansas. Kansas. Yeah, right. So that's why <laughs> it was enough to calm the chaos in my stomach because I was smart enough to be like, oh, we got somebody from NASA here. So I remember thinking like for a second, I was like, all right, it's going to be okay. And I think it was maybe the sense of order of like, we had something to focus on and then, you know, we could kind of settle into this is, there's something normal about this. He brought, he, he had brought with him one of those um, bricks that's on the bottom of the space shuttle. And I remember vividly that he got like a butane torch and, and fired it at it and it turned orange. And I got out the little disposable camera that I had and I took the one picture that I managed to take at science camp, but it's very blurry because I was like, didn't want anybody else to see me that I was taking a picture, which at the time seemed very nerdy, but now it's all that people do with their days. 
So anyway, the the program ends, and then we the the leaders like, well, guys, you know, make some joke about our parents. Like, we don't want to have to deal with your parents, so be good on your way back. And when he said parents, I kind of got <laughs> freaked out again. I was like, oh yeah, I miss them a lot. Yeah. So we walk back to the cabins, and I'm trying to like keep everything under control and not succeeding. I can just tell, like, I don't think I'm going to get through this. So it occurs to me, I should try making a phone call home to check in and maybe that will make me feel better and give me something to focus on. So I, I march up to the like main cabin, dodging these high school kids who are probably counselors who've been said or told like, you know, kids calling home on the first night is not a great sign. And I get to the payphone, and at the payphone, I'm I realize like I've never used a payphone before because I grew up in the country. Like I didn't, we did we just, all I knew was like rotary dial, <laughs> call people directly. Um, so it says like insert coins to make a call, and I'm again I'm 10 years old and also just kind of naive. Anyway, like but my dad said if I wanted to use this calling card, which I had written down in on a piece of note card in my like Velcro wallet that I didn't need any coins. So I'm like kind of panicky. I dial this number and this voice comes on and I'm like, oh shit, because it's supposed to be a recording that says like enter your calling card number now. So I hang up. I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then, then I dial it again and it's the same thing and I panic again and hang up. And then the finally, the last time, I'm like, hello, uh, I'm trying to make a calling card not call and it won't work and can you help me? And she gives me the same number that I've just dialed. And now I'm like in this vortex of freaking out. Like, ah, what are we going to do? So she senses my like discomfort and says, would you like to make a collect call? And I say, I don't, I don't know what a collect call is. So, well, you're going to, you're going to give me the phone number. We'll call them and then they'll have to decide whether they want to accept the charges. And it, People nowadays don't remember this, but like back then, a long distance phone call cost several dollars. So sure. I was like terrified that my dad would just be like, no, I'm not accepting <laughs> that. Like you can suffer through. So anyway, we make the collect call. My mom's voice comes on the other end. And I'm by now I'm sort of starting to compose myself. I'm like, what are they so worried about? There's my mom right there. And I'm starting to make my plan for like, this is what I'll do is I'll just, you know, keep it kind of light and bouncy and she'll know that I'm okay and I'll feel a little bit better. But then the, the operator's like, all right, you're connected. And my mom says, Paul. And all she hears is <laughs> just me hoping <laughs> for air as I burst into tears. And like the way that my mom tells it years afterward is that it's one of those impossible parenting situations where in reality, all she wanted was to come rescue me. In fact, I said, like, can you just come get me? It's only an hour. You'll be here by 10 o'clock. It was probably 9 o'clock at the time. Just come get me. Get me out of this hellhole. I can't take this. And she, I, I remember that she, like, paused because she was probably considering it. You know, she's, like, my oldest son is, like, freaking out at science camp. But she didn't. She said, no, Paul, I'm not going to come get you. Go back to your cabin and have 10 hot tamales and brush your teeth and go to bed and it'll look better in the morning. And it is folly to attribute one's fate to any one encounter or phone call. But in the context of that story with the Russian girl, I talk about how I feel like that was a big moment for me and that someone said, you have to suck it up and figure this out. And I was so angry with my mother at the time because all I wanted was for this pain and heartache to go away. But she did me this great favor of sort of pushing me away and, and saying, you're going to have to figure this out. Well, we talk about that a lot uh, on this podcast about uh, 
you know, that camp is, is a place where, where you do sort of find sort of what you're made of. Um, and it's funny. I've so many, so many questions that come up from that story. One, I'm like, where were your counselors when this was happening? (laughs) Like it's the first day of camp. How like every counselor knows first day of camp is when you're on super vigilant homesickness watch and who let you use the telephone? Because what do they think was going to happen? Um, <laughs> I'm also laughing because like your mom's very sweet and it's, and I love that you think that she was like, Oh, my sweet boy, maybe I'll go get him." And I'm not doubting that she necessarily felt that way. I'm only laughing because like that would not be me. If my kids were to call home from camp wanting us to come get them, I'd be like, shut the fuck up, <laughs> go back to your cabin, go to bed, everything will be fine in the morning, be, you'll be fine. Um, I probably wouldn't curse at them. Uh, but, uh, my- I mean, that, might, that could be the difference between mothers and fathers, too. Because I think if my, if my father had gotten on the phone, he would have definitely said that. But my mom, <laughs> having gone... She was also a fairly young mother, so she was, I think, just like, this is like a real, a real breaking point between my firstborn child and now the world. Sure. You know? Well, I also, my, my dad was a camp director, so I grew up my entire life at camp, so uh, some yeah. of this is, is just because of that. Like, I know from the camp <laughs> side of things, like, you have to keep kids busy. That's why, that's mm-hmm. why homesickness goes away. My dad would never let a kid go home for homesickness. Um, but it's funny because, because you're saying it's like, you weren't thinking about it. And then Mm -hmm. they mentioned like your parents and all of a sudden it was like, Oh, right. My parents, I want to go home. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, it's, I mean, so I, I only went to science camp once, but there were, after that, there was a lot of boy scout camp and basketball camp. And then, I mean, even if you think about like in, as a professional athlete, there was a lot of like summer camps where you're playing for two weeks in Las Vegas with a basketball team. Or um, when I was in Spain, we went off to the mountains to train for two weeks of training camp. Um, so it was, it was something that it always kind of harkened back because there's even when you're 30 years old and you're in Granada, Spain, it's still sort of a similar feeling to like, we're, it, this feels like the Wild West and I'm not sure what's going to happen and I don't know how I feel about that. Well, you know what's what's interesting about that, uh, and you and you wrote about this in the book that I thought was cool was talking about how you didn't play basketball necessarily just because you liked to play basketball or because you were competitive, but because you were sort of searching for that like membership in a in a in a I don't know, I'm, I'm going to say a tribe, but I don't think that's the word you used, but uh, mm-hmm. that sense of belonging. Um, and I and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think that's what you said. I I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but uh, I remember that part standing out to me. Because I think that is a lot of what happens at camp. And, you know, when you go, uh, you know, especially like in a professional environment off somewhere for a few weeks, the -hmm. thing that was cool about camp was that you did a lot of like dorky stuff or dumb stuff if you were sort of just to have somebody pitch it to you cold. Or if you were just reading it written down on a sheet of paper, be like, that sounds ridiculous. There's no way anybody would do that. But you buy into it because you're in a camp setting and everybody else is doing it, so you go along with it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I could see where that could potentially be, you know, part of what you're doing, uh, you know, in in a you know in a professional environment. But but I am curious though, how what are the things that you know were similar between sort of that kind of camp, which was like an athletic 
uh, lens to it, uh, or even as a professional versus the sort of the Boy Scouts and the science camp you went to as a kid? So I think for me, one problem I always had was that every camp I ever went to was like an extremist kind of camp. <laughs> so science camp, right? Like it's too sciencey. I don't care that much about science or Boy Scout camp. I was like, I mean, I actually ended up being an Eagle Scout, but I wasn't like, that <laughs> wasn't the, my raison d'etre as it were. Sure. So it, it seemed like everything was too much. And that was also true for basketball camp or baseball camp or whatever. Like I've had enough of this baseball shit after eight hours of it. And yet it seems like those camps kind of bred that feeling of like, well, now we're going to do more of this. I remember working a camp when I was in, I was probably three or four years out of college. And so in the throes of my professional career, I went back to Iowa state and worked like the kids camp, you know, where the, the, the kids pay 500 bucks and are there the whole week. And we're living in the dorms with them. And it just, it's, it always struck me that like, this is just too much. Like, why do we, we don't need to be with these kids this for this long all the time. So uh, I am interested in how lots of people have had these more well-rounded camp experiences, you know, like I think you hear about that for me, from my perspective, you, you always hear about that more on the East coast, like that idea of the kids who off, went off to the Jewish summer camp or whatever it was where they made friends who they met the next summer again, or there was this continuity to it. And there were probably girls around like every camp I ever, every <laughs> camp I ever went to it with, very few exceptions that I can think of was always just like all boys. So, and I was always like kind of scared of the other little boys because they were so much more mature than I was. And I just was like, you, you don't want to like start them up. Like just like, cause do you remember this about little boys or even teenage boys? Like if you're in a group and somebody suggests something crazy, no one ever says like, that's a bad idea. It's just this <laughs> constant like one-upmanship that results in somebody doing something real stupid and i like i was just terrified of that at all the time so i remember just being like i don't encourage them let just like let's let it simmer down and then you can go to sleep yeah i i would say i was probably somewhere fairly close to that uh i was a rule follower now some of that mm -hmm. was my dad's camp is sort of known as being like like the the goodiest of the goodies went to this uh, camp oh yeah so there wasn't, I mean, but you definitely had kids in each cabin who were sort of the, the troublemakers as it were, and they would be the ones who would be, who would be starting shit. But yeah, I was more like, and, and the sad thing is it's not because my dad was the camp director. It's not like <laughs> I was like, oh, I can't do this cause I'm going to get in trouble. Like I was just a wuss. Like I just wasn't gonna, gonna go that far. I remember, uh, my senior year in high school, I went to a youth group camp, uh, for a weekend and I snuck out of my cabin to go see a girl. And this mm -hmm. was like, like mission impossible for me. Like that was like <laughs> the boldest thing I'd ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I, I think yeah. I've even told the story on, on the podcast. Like it was so sad. I like the distance between my cabin and her cabin was probably like, I don't know, 600 feet. And I went like mm -hmm. all the way around the campgrounds, through the woods, like all the stuff, just because like I was so terrified of getting mm -hmm. caught. Uh, and it wasn't even like regular. I mean, it was ridiculous. But so yes, I definitely, <laughs> I could definitely relate uh, to what you're talking about. So all the camps you went to, they were sort of 
separate entities each year. There was you never went to like one camp several times in a row where you had a chance to sort of develop some of those relationships and have the sort of that uh, coming back the next year and having those things already in common. Well, you would think that that would have happened with Boy Scout camp because we I think went I went six years in a row or, okay. or something like that. Um, but for some reason there were, so at, at this particular Boy Scout camp, there were probably, let's say eight weeks of camp eligibility every summer. And you were kind of put into a, a slot kind of at random. And it was from all over Kansas basically. So you wouldn't see the same troops from one summer to the next. The only continuity I can think of is that one year at Boy Scout camp, a Canadian troop came and they taught us how to play some version of ultimate frisbee that seemed revolutionary to my small mind at the time. And we, our troop befriended them. And we, the next summer went all the way to Manitoba to camp with these kids, which I remember being, I was like, Oh shit, this is what boy Scouts can be. Like you could meet other people from other places and that would like sort of expand your horizon. I was of course, in tears the night before the trip to Canada because I was still extremely prone to homesickness and spent the f- the full two weeks just ready to cry at any moment. Yeah, see, we needed if we could go back in time, Paul, we got to get you to a full four week camp. Um, oh man, it's it's so funny because you know in talking to different people uh, in getting their different camp backgrounds, like I went to four week camps, like I went to a Jewish summer camp and it was four weeks at a time and. The, the thought of only going to camp for like a week at a time is so hard for me to comprehend because like it's just not enough time. I mean, but you know, by the time you sort of get a sense of who people are and who what people's names are, it's already time to go. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if you go and you you know if it's if it were co-ed and you struck up a connection with somebody, like that's such a limited amount of time. Um, but uh, but you. <laughs> You you said uh, ultimate frisbee and that immediately piqued my interest because that is such a staple camp game. What was the difference? What was their uh, what was their trick? Well, so there's is it like, like a Canadian frisbee. It was like ultimate frisbee combined with what's the political correct way to say the game where you throw the football to one guy and then everybody tries to go smash him. Oh Jesus! <laughs> is there? Is yeah, there I don't any think there is. Politically correct. Uh, yeah, there's only politically incorrect terms for that, which we don't need to broadcast. Sure. We'll just get them misquoted. But so it was sort of like that. It seemed like there was like three Frisbees, but everybody was like chasing after the person who had the Frisbee and the teams were very vague and it was it was built for the entire camp to play. So there were like 80 people or maybe there were only 30, but because I was small, it felt like 80 people. And it reminded me of pure chaos. It also, because I love sports so much anytime i could like use my body then i didn't feel that overwhelming sense of homesickness which was nice that doesn't seem like a very canadian sport to me uh, that seems like a lot more like intense and and uh mean-spirited than what i typically think of with canadians yeah maybe that were maybe they were fake canadians i don't <laughs> know maybe this is like they it could be that they were more frontiersy canadians because they're from manitoba okay so they were less civilized than their eastern counterparts so we've had some guests on in the past who have uh, gone to scouts camp um and so i'm curious from your perspective one a couple of things that stand out from their experiences i remember was uh that people cursed like crazy um which i guess really? that's really 
Uh, I mean, that seems like any camp, but, uh, and then also that there were pranks, uh, in between, uh, some of the different groups. Was that, uh, did you have any experiences with any of that? Well, so for us, my, we, again, I don't know that we would call ourselves a scouting family, but all, I have three younger brothers and we're all Eagle Scouts. So we all spent a lot of time at Boy Scout activities and we joke all the time at my parents and I about how poorly run the camp was in that it was not built with the kids in mind. It was sort of like a, like a redneck day spa for the adults. So (laughs) they, I remember, I remember adults looking at it like a little vacation where they would just like sit around the campfire. And I don't, I doubt they were drinking beer. That, that would be absurd, but it seemed, it seemed like they would just like let us run amok. There was a lot of this game called manhunt, which sounds just as bad as it is where it was like, hide and seek but there was like punching people in the shoulders if you caught them and there were teams and it was a huge camp and there's no way that many kids should have been allowed to just be running around in the woods like they were um so what i can remember is vividly just wanting to get away from boy scout camp at all times which (laughs) because i played summer baseball and my brothers and i were big into like baseball at the time about two nights each of those weeks we would get to leave camp for a dose of civilization where we would go play, we'd have to go play a baseball game. Cause you know, our team couldn't do without us since we were 11 and basically worthless, but it felt like we were all future, uh, insert great professional baseball player here. Um, <laughs> so I can remember like going off to baseball and that was like, I've reached civilization again. And then having to go back to camp in the dark at like 930 and all of the kids are running around playing manhunt. And a lot of these kids are like older. They're like 14 and 15 years old. And you're like 10, which is a huge <laughs> difference when you're that age. Yeah. And it felt like I was like rolling into Fallujah, like <laughs> just fires around and kids screaming and trying to attack you out of the dark. And you just want to go home with your parents. Oh, my God. Uh, so it's funny you say that because... Uh, I did not get to play baseball growing up. Um, my dad's excuse, and I still feel like if, if I think about this as an adult, this can't really have been his reason. He had to have had a real reason, and this is just what he told me. But I didn't get to play baseball because when school would end, we would immediately mm-hmm. go to camp for the summer. And oh, right. he told he would tell he always tell me that I couldn't play because I would miss the last week, the last month of the season, and that wouldn't be fair to my team. Just like uh, you, like, like because right. I was gonna be so good that they'd be right, like, "Well, right. we just have to cancel the season now." Micah's not here, uh, <laughs> so I never got to play. Which, incidentally, um, I feel like I get like a like a little uh, tick when uh, whenever I'm at camp, which is not that rare anymore. But playing softball because I am terrible at it because I never uh-huh. got to play it growing up. And people would always play softball at camp, and I would literally be like the guy standing in right field holding his glove up saying, like, please don't hit it to me. Please don't hit it to me. <laughs> um, uh, that's pretty funny. Uh, Manhunt. That that does sound like a – almost like a capture the flag kind of yeah, game. It was, it was capture the flag-esque. Um, I, the, the, other, the other vivid memory from Boy Scout camp is there were – the age difference seems like it really sticks in my head. Um, I can remember like when you, the first day you got to camp, so it was a Sunday, it would be like pictures with your parents and then they would all drive off. And then you had to have reported to 
camp with a swimsuit under whatever shorts or pants you were wearing because you would go directly to the lake where you had to do a swim test that in retrospect feels a little bit like that scene in uh happy gilmore where um uh they like when the retirement community they're at the retirement community and adam sandler goes to visit his grandmother and uh God damn it. The uh who's the guy who's in charge of Ben Stiller? Like, oh, it's Ben Stiller, yeah. So he's he's like super nice and deferential when Adam Sandler's there. And then right. he like guns off in his car and then he's like, Oh, got my eyes on you and like, oh, your knuckles hurt or whatever. Well, congratulations, your back's gonna hurt. <laughs> That's, you right. just yard dude. That's what it felt like, where it was like, Oh, this is all nice for the parents to get in this fucking lake that's <laughs> gross and filled with God knows what and swim out to that dock and back four times, even though you've never been in water that's not clear like this. Uh, so like, I, I remember like swimming and thrashing. I'm still a terrible swimmer and I was a terrible swimmer. Then I managed to like get to the blue swimmer level and then you get back and they're like, okay, now you got to float on your back for a minute. And I remember these like older scouts, I'm whatever, nine or 10 or 11. I don't know. I'm lying on my back trying to float. I can't float because I'm like skinny and dense and I'm just, I literally cannot float on my back to this day. So I'm paddling with my arms, just trying to stay afloat. And they're screaming at me like, you're never going to make it if you don't stop that. We're starting the time over. I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe that somebody paid for I'm me to 10. be here. Like, yeah. Like why is everybody so mean and so angry at all times? And I, I, th- I feel like that set a tone in my head that was kind of borne out throughout the week. There was, a weird swimming merit badge. And it happened to be that camp was like at the end of May, which in Kansas can still be pretty cold. And I was trying to pass this, something where you had to float for 10 minutes. And at some point I was like, guys, I can't do this. I'm so cold. Like I'm going to freeze to death. And they're like, stay in there, stay in there. If you come out, you have to start over. I'm like, guys, I can't, I can't do it. And I, I vividly remember, by the way, I remember working on this story and then it never made it into the book because it just doesn't really have a great conclusion. But <laughs> I remember like spoiler alert over the dock. Even <laughs> even though they're they're screaming at me, I get out of the dock and it's like the first time I'd ever quit something. I'm just laying there on the dock, shivering, and one of them like drapes a, bla- a, a towel over me, kind of just half acidly. And then as we're walking away, this kid named Ted Adams looks back at me and is like, "Whoa, dude, your lips are blue." Because I was like so cold that my lips were blue, but they still wouldn't let me out of the water. I mean, that is not the picture of Scout Camp that I have in my brain. I picture Scout Camp as this like rising tide lifts all boats, like let's all come together in the spirit of brotherhood and learn to yeah. commune with nature. That sounds more like like uh, like a drill sergeant, like boot camp. Yeah, like work camp. Like we did something <laughs> wrong, and now we're yeah. That's what I think. That's where I. Uh, built some rather negative uh, 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 connotation with camp. And I think, like, I actually really defend sort of Boy Scoutery in general because I think I got a lot of good out of it. But it also, like, at least where I grew up, because some of the people I grew up around are pretty rednecky, like, some of the camp stuff converge on that, like, weird militaristic stuff because maybe they don't have an outlet for it in their regular life. So, there is a weird conflation of Boy Scouts with like ROTC kind of vibe. Interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> that does not sound like a lot of fun. Uh, no, I, mean, I, was, I basically dreaded it like my, the whole 
six weeks leading up to it, I'd be like, oh, God, this summer's it's going to be ruined by Boy Scout camp. Oh, man. it's it's See, if you'd lived in Overland Park, you could have gone to the uh, summer camp we went to. Uh, <laughs> we had a lot yeah. of kids from Overland Park that went to, went to camp with us. Um, oh yeah, we didn't, we didn't have access to that in Meriden, Kansas. We didn't know about such highfalutin things. Um, all right, well let's move on to our uh, campfires and color wars questionnaire. Title still pending. Uh, okay. So I'm not sure if you're going to have one for this, uh, but uh, but maybe it'll spark some something because uh, it sounds like you went to a lot of uh, single sex camps. But uh, did you ever have a, a camp kiss or a most romantic moment at camp? Um see man and i guess you could count as like you could count training camps uh yeah not yeah not as a child i did have um when i was i remember it was probably my second to last year playing as a pro i was in spain and the year before i had broken my ankle on the last play the last game of the year so when i reported back to that same team the only time i ever played for the same team in two seasons um, we went off to training camp in Granada or close to Granada, which is in the mountains of, of Southern Spain. And, um, we were in this like Franco era training facility that had once been an Olympic training facility and was still kind of, but it was like a little bit decrepit and, and kind of spooky. It was like the shining a little bit. Cause it was in a resort town that in the wintertime would have skiers, but in the fall it was just deserted. Anyway, it was, it's just a bunch of dudes on a basketball team, but there was one, Spanish swimmer, a female swimmer training there. And I remember like she took on, you know, like stage hot is like when a musician gets like three extra points because she's sort of on stage. Well, this girl was like isolated and athlete hot. Like she was the only girl in this whole facility. And she was an athlete. She was an Olympic swimmer for the Spanish national team. So I remember doing a lot of like trying to buddy up to her because I had to be in the pool instead of while my team was off training, I was still recovering from ankle surgery. So I was in the pool with her a lot and did everything I could to try to figure out a way that it would lead to some sort of debaucherous trip to her hotel room. But even though she gave me her phone number and we were texting, it never led anywhere, probably because she spoke no English and I spoke 30% 30% Spanish. And so I don't have a good story about that. I only have a story of futile uh, efforts at the Spanish swimmer. Uh, yeah. So there is a term for that also at camp, camp hot for sure. And camp goggles. Uh, camp goggles is when over the course of the summer, you know, as, as time goes by and uh, your hormones start to get impatient, people start to look mm-hmm. a lot, uh, a lot more appetizing. Um, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Number two, what was your uh, best camp performance? Oh, best camp performance. Um, I would say, uh, so after my junior year of college, um, our coach said, hey, Paul, there's this thing called the Snow Valley Basketball School run by the Portland Trailblazers. It happens in Santa Barbara. And it is, in essence, it was a way for the Trailblazers to bring in a bunch of guys they wanted to kind of scout for the following year under the guise that they were camp counselors. So like 12 of us who were all in the zone of like maybe being drafted or playing overseas or something, all flew to Santa Barbara where we were counselors during the day, but then at night we would play pickup games basically so the trailblazers could illegally scout us. (laughs) And 
I remember that like in college, I was very unheralded. Like I was a, a walk on at Iowa State. And I'd had to kind of like work my way up. And this was, I think, the first time where it hit me like, oh, shit, like I might be good enough to play professionally. Like I've kind of thought that I would be able to do that, but I'm holding my own in these situations. Uh, and these coaches are raising their eyebrows saying like, oh, man, we didn't know he was any good, especially because at, in college I was very much a role player. And, and in this situation was allowed to just do whatever I wanted and play like a real basketball player. And I remember that click of like, oh, this this is going to be an option. While also being kind of homesick, even though it was a week and I was 21 <laughs> years old. <laughs> I mean, it really, because you talk about this uh, in your book, and I know this is a famous story of yours, the the, the crying at the end of the uh, Iowa State NCAA tournament game. I mean, really mm-hmm. camp set the table for all of that. Yeah, yeah. It, it introduced a lot of extra anxiety that then uh, was borne out on national television from time to time. Yeah, a lot of – in this in this book, as I, I was recording the audio book, you know, a month ago, and because, like, with the book, the, the lifespan is so long, you kind of get away from it for a while. So I've been working on these other two books and hadn't really, you know, connected with these stories for quite a while. One of those readings, like Jesus, a lot of these end with me crying. Like that's <laughs> I could have named it like stories about me crying. <laughs> yeah, st- stories I tell on dates that end with me crying. That's it's an I've yeah. not seen that philosophy. Uh, it's like the secret right. or uh, the game or whatever. But uh, all right, well, number three, uh, I, I, maybe this will be related, but maybe not. Uh, what was your most embarrassing moment at camp? Uh, most embarrassing. I, I feel like, I, I think I was just on the verge of tears or panic all, all the time from about, from any summer camp that I went to from about, I don't know, 10 to 16 that I think I was like embarrassed constantly. Like I remember going off to some leadership camp as a sophomore in high school that was in Lawrence, Kansas, which is like 30 minutes from my house. And just everything I wanted was to like get out of there as fast as I could. I really, it's kind of inexplicable. We could like get really deep about this. Cause like when I got home, I was like, there's nothing really that interesting here. But I think it was something I like, I don't really like feeling in any way caged or I don't deal well with authority figures. And so I think it had a lot to do with being told you have to go to these places at these times and be in these spots. I, um, I'm always fascinated when school time rolls around because I hated school. Like I was good at school, but I hated when summer was over. And now that I think about it, when I ask people like I, cause I always assume everybody hated school and it turns out they didn't, which is weird to me. I think I felt that same way about camp. Like it was very rigid and there was no sense of like, once you get done, then you can do whatever you want. It was more like, you're going to be here as a prisoner forever so i think i was just embarrassed all the time by how little i liked it how much everybody else seemed to be liking it that i didn't really allow myself to like let go and do something fun or funny that could be construed as like standard embarrassment now your brothers were they were they similar experiences at camps did they have a a better time now that sort of big brother had kind of paved paved the way or, or do you think this just your parents just had that effect on you? Just wanted to be close to them when you're growing up. <laughs> no, I mean, 
I do know that my brother Matt, who uh, is who lives out here in LA with me, or not with me, but close to me, we talk a lot about how like I was a sucker and went to Boy Scout camp six times, and my brother Dan went five times, and then Matt went once because he said, "I will run away if you make me go there again." <laughs> and we're like, "Why didn't we think of that?" Like we were just—I think Dan and I were just two rules following because yeah. when you're you're not exposed to enough rebellion when you're the oldest or the second oldest, so. Like, well, I guess I have to go be miserable. Whereas Matt would be like, no, not doing that. Never, <laughs> ever going to do that. Um, so, I, I mean, I do think that like it had something to do with, I love the freedom of summer. Just like you just, you, maybe you have some chores you got to do, but you can kind of do those at your own pace and then be done with them and do what you want. And that was interrupted by this like rigid school like situation. And I couldn't figure out everybody else was like, this is so great. Right. I'm, no, this is actually <laughs> like prison to me. And I think that has borne out in my life. Like I've never had a normal job probably because of this same kind of attitude. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, as I mentioned, I went to camp every summer, all summer. And I was thinking about this the other day because uh, my oldest son is five. So he's a couple, two, three years away from going to camp for like a full session. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, God, what, what is he going to, what are we going to do with him the other month of the summer? Like I have no concept of how to spend a summer seriously I mean, we would leave the day camp ended i mean the day school ended we would leave to go to camp and then camp ended like the weekend before school started because mississippi is ridiculous and start right. school at like the beginning of august uh so like i've never had that time of just sitting around at home with nothing to do i i i, I guess it sounds cool but i'm like i feel like i'd be so bored <laughs> oh, it was heaven. I mean, we were lucky because we lived in the country and like we would go, we had Mrs. Barnes's 80 acres to go down and just like wander around or there was basketball to play or baseball. And we all, I mean, I was lucky too. I had these two and then eventually three younger brothers that was, was like instant um, playmates. So we didn't, I mean, I didn't worry about like, oh, I got to go find some other people. I think if you're like an only child or if you, it's like you and a sister. Maybe it seems a lot more attractive to go off to camp. Whereas I was like, I would rather hang out with my brothers than most of these assholes anyway. So (laughs) why why do you need to cart me off to the lake again? If I got to hang out with assholes, I'm going to be related to them. (laughs) Right. I'll be related to them and bigger than they are. That's right. Yeah, that's key too. Uh, All right, number four, uh, top or bottom bunk? Uh, Man, I feel like this is, it, it has changed so much, right? Like I think when I was a kid, top bunk is... It's so extravagant and decadent because you're up in the air. But as an adult, I'm like I have, I've had seven surgeries in my life. If I fell off of a top bunk, I'm gonna have the eight. So <laughs> bottom bunk. For now, sure. when did uh, you're probably the tallest person we've had on this podcast? When did you grow? Like, how tall were you in high school? Um, I was, I was lucky because I had never had a growth spurt. So I was like. So six one as a freshman and six four as a sophomore and six seven as a junior and six eight or nine as a senior. So like, I was just I, everybody else grew really early and we were all the same height in like eighth grade and then I just sort of kept growing. Okay, I was gonna say because I went to Jewish camp, so you know six feet was pretty tall. Uh, I, I'm just trying not to think a of, lot of six nine guys. Not a lot. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to think like what it would be like to be six nine on a top bunk. That would be really difficult, I would think. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast that's just called "What It's Like to Be Six Nine in <laughs> Blank." In blank, right? And the answer is 
usually not great for most of life. <laughs> um, specifically on bunk beds. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess probably being 6'9 on a bottom bunk wouldn't be a whole picnic either. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I can't, I can't deal with any sort of headboard or footboard. Those are not my friend. Yeah, yeah. All right, number five. Uh, what was your favorite camp tradition if you had one? Um, favorite coming home without question. <laughs> uh, I, do, 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 do. I think I would say camp tradition. See, like that one's tough because you guys had probably this like consistent, like you know, every year was the same. I do remember that feeling, and it, it kind of relates to the coming home. But on the last night of Boy Scout camp, they would have this campfire and there was and it was like they would shoot an arrow into the lake and it was this whole quasi native american ceremony meant to signify like camp is closed and now we've made it through and i do remember feeling this sense of accomplishment that like i did survive this thing with all of these kids who were kind of wilder than i was um so i like that wasn't necessarily a tradition other than it was just the ending of camp but I remember that deep sense of satisfaction of like, well, you got through it. You don't have to do this for another 51 weeks. Oh, God. You'll, you'll oh, probably just, survive the next God, month. I just feel so bad for you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, only because like it was the exact opposite for me. Like the day camp ended was the saddest thing. Really? And then it was, you know, whatever, 44 weeks, I guess, uh, that you had to slog through until you could go back <laughs> to camp. That's amazing. Um, Your dad must have run a hell of a camp, and I wish I had gotten to go to it. <laughs> uh, it you know, it was a good time. Um, I actually, I went to a camp in Indiana as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, you know, summer camp's the best. Uh, I, w- I really, it's probably too late, but if I could find a way for you to get back for, uh, for, for a good session, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> I think you'd enjoy it. Bring me in as a, yeah, can you bring me in as like a guest speaker? And I get to stay for a week or something. Absolutely, we, you know, you can teach a, a writing workshop. Uh, that that would definitely. We there had we, a, we had a camp paper, uh, the Jacob's Yenta. Um, Jesus, you could, you know, this you is come in. yeah. It's like it's a little society. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny when because when you said we got this podcast about camps, to me, it was like, well, we're just going to share horror stories of being tortured by older kids, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not true. Other people had fun. It turns out, but see, that's why it's crazy. I, but see, that's why I'm so glad we had you because everybody's experience is not the same. And part of what I'm curious to find out through these conversations is what was it like for people who had different experiences? We've had, I mean, we've had a few people who didn't didn't have the best time, uh, who were mm-hmm. who were homesick or just were very shy, uh, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I definitely. Uh, I definitely, you know, my heart goes out to you for that time, but you seem like you ended up all right. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel too bad. Um, yeah, you don't need to feel too bad for me. You can feel bad for like the, the childhood version of me. And I think that it definitely did me a lot of good Yeah. in the long run. Well, you know, and it's funny too, because b- before we had this conversation, I was thinking about how I would have thought that camp would have been such a boon for you with all of the amazing or at least from an outsider's point of view amazing experiences you got to have traveling all over the globe and seeing all these cool places all these places that most people don't ever get to like kazan etc um because for me like that's what camp did for us it was you know getting you comfortable in your own skin uh and and teaching you to try new things etc etc so you know maybe it did provide that for you even if you didn't uh know it at the time 
I mean, I think I, I, in a lot of ways, I, I just wasn't mature enough to, to see it that way. And it does, it, it is interesting looking back at like how a couple of years of maturation really have such an impact when you're 11, 12, 13, 14. Um, I was just so far behind on the maturation scale that I, I think it took into my mid to upper 20s before I started to understand what perspective I was gaining from getting to travel, um, getting to see things. And, and now, like, there's not, like, I'm, I will turn 40 two days before Christmas this year. And my first thought was like, you know what I could do that would be fun for my 40th birthday is like go to Estonia for a week by myself. Wow. So like that's, you know, to me, that's to me, the, the best time is to go somewhere on my own and explore without knowing anything about it, which if you had told me that when I was 10 at science camp, I would have said you were an insane person. See, so, it, you know, it, everything, uh, you know, if it doesn't kill us, it makes us stronger. Um, that's right all right well uh we will uh we'll wrap up with uh bitches and roses aka coals and diamonds aka roses and thorns uh this is just a chance to share uh one good thing and one bad thing uh, that's going on um so paul i will uh i will uh cede the floor to you if you want to share a, a bitch and rose for yourself all right well my uh i guess my see this is this like the sort of thing that at boy scout camp they would not have abided they would have just been like, no, we're not talking about how we feel about things. Um, There's no badge for feelings, son. Yeah. <laughs> we're here to orienteer and to strap logs together with rope, you idiot. <laughs> uh, all right. My, my uh, bitch and rose or coal and diamond or whatever you said um, is the same thing, which is last night I woke up. So, again, you mentioned we're recording this right before the book comes out. When, when people hear it, it will be out. But last night, the two nights before the book's release, I woke up at 4.15 in a panic of just like, <gasps> have we done everything? Like, is there anything we're forgetting? And um, it, it had a lot to do with my expectations for like how this book will go. My first book was not a bestseller and not huge, but it was pretty big. Like it was, it had a lot of readers and I think spoiled me in a way for like how things can go. With that said, I didn't necessarily connect to it like this book, which is a lot more personal and which was written really from a sense of just like wanting to share these stories and have people connect with them. So I think my my bitch and rose or I can't I'm not doing the terminology well would <laughs> be that it's it's maddening that I know this, that what really matters is just having a few people read it and love it and connect to it, but that I occasionally get away from that and start to worry about like, well, are we going to sell a hundred thousand copies or not? So I think it's, it's in my brain right now. It's so vivid, this yin and yang, this coal and diamond of, um, of knowing what's the right way to approach a book and not always being able to perform that or to, to live up to that. Now, does your background as an athlete help with that at all? Because I feel like, and I am not an athlete, uh, but the, the sort of, the you can't focus too much on the outcome. You have to think about just the process, so to speak, and you control what you can control and you can't, you let go of the things you can't. Yeah. I think it does in a coping mechanism way in that, <laughs> like when I sprung out of bed at four fifteen, my first thing was, okay, what are you going to do about this? And I ended up like sitting down and writing for 15 minutes about like, okay, this is what I'm feeling. This is how this will get taken care of. And I was able to bounce back much more quickly, I think, because of that athletic background of knowing, like, 
yeah, so the book will come out and it'll do what it's going to do. And there's not much I can do about that. But the athletic side also is a curse because of the competitiveness. So sure. I think there's also that sense of like, I have to beat everyone, which isn't real great for <laughs> writing. Um, well, uh, well, I read it uh, and I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed your first book as well. Um, so I definitely recommend uh, everybody listening. Go check it out. Um, my bitch, I feel like I have several bitches, but I don't want to complain too much. I'm trying to, so there's one serious bitch, uh, that I will share. I'm going to, I'm going to take a second bitch this week because this is a special one. Um, Camp Newman, which is a summer camp, uh, as part of the, uh, reformed Jewish camping movement that, uh, my dad's camp was a part of, uh, Mm -hmm. was decimated by the wildfires in uh, Northern California. Most of the camp, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, has been burned to the ground, oh, wow. uh, which is really sad um, for a lot that of people. That really puts mine into perspective. Well, hey, listen, um, <laughs> my trust me, my other one's going to be much, much pettier. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, in all seriousness, it's you know very, very devastating to hear that. And when you know when you think about camp and and you have such great positive associations with it and memories for some of us at least, uh, mm-hmm. you know it's it's uh, very sad to hear. So I'll, I'll make sure to put in the show notes a link to donate if you have any interest. Um, in, in supporting uh, their cause and trying to uh, rebuild Camp Newman, um, please do so. But that was definitely uh, very, very sad to hear. Mother Nature is kicking our ass this year. It is Yeah, ridiculous. yeah, she's uh, unhappy. <laughs> um, my, my, uh, my much smaller scale bitch uh, is just, uh, I'm a huge soccer fan, and uh, the U- U.S. national team not making the World Cup is just so devastating uh, to me. I'm so bummed. That's like the. Only... Don't you think that's like? Uh, don't you think that's like little Paul being so sad at at camp? Like it's only gonna make him stronger. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I mean, you know, you gotta look for the, the bright spot in something. But uh, you know, U.S. men's soccer in particular for me is like the only thing that Americans are underdogs at. We are expected oh, yeah. to dominate in like every other facet of life sports mm-hmm. whatever but soccer is the one thing that like we're terrible at and everybody knows it so we're this plucky you know upstarts and uh you know mm-hmm. the at, success with the absence of expectations is the best kind uh in my it's opinion true. and so, so uh yeah. yeah so it's just a real bummer because now it's you know 2022 and who knows if we'll still be here although who knows if we will be here for the 2018 <laughs> cup so you know, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, that's true. My brother, one of my brothers, is a uh, is more of a soccer fan than I am, and he was saying that that was the the kicker about it was that it's fun to root for the U.S. in the World Cup because you don't feel like you're rooting for the Borg. No, you really don't, and that's what's fun about American soccer. I mean, the women are awesome and they dominate, and so when mm-hmm. they lose, you get pissed because you expect to go in and win, but. With the men, mm-hmm. it's like if we can walk and chew gum at the same time, it's like a thrill. <laughs> um, but I guess we can't. So, nope, uh, gotta wait some years. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so that's my bitch. Uh, and my rose is actually soccer related. Also, uh, I feel like this podcast is sort of turning into my personal uh, love affair with my sons playing soccer. Uh, I was not much of an athlete growing up, but my children mm-hmm. both. Uh, have already surpassed my output at soccer, even as toddlers. My uh, oh, my, wow. my youngest son is three, and at three years of age, just understanding the concept 
of a game makes you better than most. And so oh, yeah. because he understands how soccer works, he dominates. Uh, and it's just, I cannot, I cannot imagine parenthood getting any better. Like I'm, I hope there will be <laughs> moments that will, uh, that will surpass this, but this past Saturday, uh, and I, I posted some videos of this on Facebook, but my, uh, my son was, was dominating so badly that near the end of the game, they didn't know what to do with him, So they decided to have him switch teams and play for the other oh. team. And then he just kept scoring goals. So he had like, I don't know, eight or ten goals overall. And I mean, I just, I sucked at soccer. So I don't know where this is coming from, but I am writing it until it ends. And it is just, (laughs) every Saturday is just sheer delight. And like, I get it. I get how parents get so invested in their kids' athletics and become Mm -hmm. like crazy people. Uh, I right. don't think that's going to be me because I don't th- my older son, he was like this when he was three. He's now five and he is already, his best days are behind him. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I don't think this is going to be an issue for me because I don't think they're going to make it an issue though. Hey kids, I challenge you, you know, prove me wrong. Right. Uh, prove them wrong. But uh, no, it's just so fun to watch them. I really just, it, it's like a drug. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, All right, so, uh, you talk to me into, I'm going to have kids now then. Yeah, there you go. Um, so that's our show. Uh, if you want to subscribe to us, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, any other podcast listening tool you can find. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Summer Camp Pod and on Instagram at Campfires and Color Wars. If you want to send us your horror stories from camp and the times that you were crying and wanting to go home uh please do that or any other ideas you have for guests or stories you want to share you can email us at summercamppod at gmail.com again paul shirley your book uh stories i tell on dates uh will be out when this is released uh it's very good can't recommend it enough if people want to find you on social media or anywhere paul where can they find you i'm on twitter at paul then shirley uh, and then same Instagram name. Uh, the book is available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, places like that, and should be easy enough to find. Awesome. And if you want to hear more from me, I'm on Twitter at Micah Hart. And uh, I guess I should stop talking about my Instagram account for Words with Friends because I lost the password and I've been too lazy to go back and find it. <laughs> but if you want to go back and look at my old hilarious jokes, it's rejected WWF. Uh, making fun of my favorite game, Words with Friends. Um, And with that, we'll see you next time. And Paul, I always ask uh, people to say this uh, when we finish. Uh, My dad had a saying where he would say, don't waste a minute. That was the theme of camp. So I always say, don't waste a minute, Paul. And you can say back to me. Don't waste a minute, Micah. Happiness runs in a circular motion. Thought is like a little boat upon the sea. Everybody is a part of everything anyway. You can have everything if you let yourself be. Happiness runs.